Father, we praise you for whom you are and the amazing provision you've made for us to come into a relationship with yourself. We bless you for calling us out of darkness into light and that you are still in the business of doing this. We thank you for each other. We thank you for each of us that we can rejoice together in what you've done in our lives. We pray now that you would open our hearts to receive what you would have for us. We'd also pray today, Lord, for each family that suffered loss this week, for the Friesens and the Haggertys and the loss of Scott. We rejoice in his home going with you. Thank you that he's in a more glorious place. For Betty Hagen and Ron, we would pray that you would comfort Ron and again rejoice in her home going. I pray for Christine's mom, grandma, and uh, also Sally's grandma. We just ask your blessing um, on the mothers who lost their mothers to this week. Thank you that you're the God of all comfort. We would pray that you would work through your word, work through fellowship, work through truths to comfort each one who uh, has the sense of loss today. Go before us as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I chose this passage, by the way, back in February. Okay, so I just want to, by way of, by way of um, caveat, no one asked me to preach this this passage on giving today, so I wanted to wanted to just let you know that. Also, uh, preaching this passage is for better or for worse. We'll see that um, Paul gives us seven reasons, good reasons, why we're obligated to support gospel ministers. On the other hand, all of us, and I'm sure including our pastor, can only aspire to and have not attained to the single-heartedness and self-denial of the apostles. So we kind of take this both ways, that there's lots of reasons here, and uh, we, we uh, admire and just uh, stand in awe of the Holy Spirit's work in the apostles' heart. I think to understand this passage, it's helpful to locate Paul's ministry among the Corinthians, historically. So Paul went on his first missionary journey with Barnabas to Cyprus and Asia Minor in about A.D. 47 or A.D. 48, and then in A.D. 49 and 50, he went on a second missionary journey. And if you recall, he passed through Asia Minor, the Holy Spirit saying, don't stop here, don't preach the gospel here. And then he went on to Greece, where he visited, among other cities, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, and then Corinth. And then he stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half. Uh, and that time likely ended in the spring of A.D. 52. And then Paul returned to of the church at Antioch. And uh, from there, uh, Luke records that after having spent some time in Antioch, Paul began his third missionary journey, likely in the summer of AD 52. And so then in that case, after passing, visiting some of the churches in Asia Minor he visited before, he came to Ephesus. And he spent between two and three years in Ephesus. And this is usually placed somewhere around the autumn of AD 52, to the summer of AD 55. And we know that because in chapter 16 of this book, Paul says, I'm going to stay here about until Pentecost. And Pentecost happened in the late spring, early summer. It signified the uh, harvesting of wheat. And so 
in the Middle East, I looked it up, I thought, when do they harvest? We usually think about the fall, but in this case, actually, they harvest wheat, I suppose, because it's hot and dry in the um, early summer. So Paul's ministry in Ephesus and the writing of this book, of 1 Corinthians, was written in about the summer of A.D. 55. Let's look for a minute before we start, also at the context for just a minute. We saw in chapter 8 how that Paul took the superficial justifications of the Corinthians for um, actions which led their brothers and sisters into sin, and he kind of deepened them all. Um, they asserted, hey, you know what, knowledge is the most important thing, and Paul said, no, love is what edifies. Love is the most important thing. They asserted eating in a temple doesn't really matter because they're the meats are sacrificed to no gods. And Paul came back and said, no, essentially the Father created you and you exist for the Father and through Jesus Christ. So he took them much deeper than just an intellectual knowledge of the gods. They asserted their right to eat in the temple. We're free to do whatever we want. And Paul responded that food, as we read just a few minutes ago, food does not commend us to God. And that the Corinthians' authority, their right to food, was not important compared to the keeping of the consciences of their brothers and sisters. Which reminds me, does anyone remember the definition I had gave of conscience? Because I couldn't remember it myself. <laughs> so just to, just to refresh your conscience, we said was, when we last opened this issue, remember we talked about a user's manual for conscience. Conscience is that self-awareness that evaluates and convicts us according to the moral demands of God and warns or approves. It's the inner man where we talked about keeping our consciences and obeying our conscience because that was really a theme that was in chapter 8. And then finally, Paul concluded his discussion of rights and liberties by saying that, the Corinthian, that, that, by saying that he was willing to not eat meat ever again, forever, um, if this would keep a brother from stumbling. So how does then Paul get into chapter 9? Where is he? He's going to address uh, two issues here or he could be addressing two issues, okay? He may be, and it's kind of hard to say which direction Paul's going. We know we have some sense, as I'll explain to you. But Paul may be saying, hey, you know what? I want to tell you more about how to follow me, more about how to sacrifice your rights for the good of your brothers and sisters. That may be one, one thing he's going to pursue here. Also, Paul is also evidently is, is defending his apostleship. Um, if you look at the first part of chapter 9, you'll see Paul asks a series of questions. And the Greek here is vigorous. These are um, pretty aggressive, short, punchy sentences. He says, am I not free? And the way these are structured, it, it presumes there'll be a positive answer. Of course you are. Um, am I not an apostle? Of course you are, is the way this is structured. So these, these questions assume a very short, positive response. And so evidently, Besides the fact of Paul perhaps talking about this idea of, of dying to self and sacrificing your rights, Paul also was dealing with those who, who attacked his apostleship, who said he, he said he was not really an apostle or did not have apostolic authority. If you look at verse 2a, he says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. And also in, in verse 12, you'll see that he says... Um, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? That he being there, there may be some other folks who are criticizing Paul and attacking him. And so we just gather from the, the way this argument flows that someone was questioning his, his, his apostolic authority, and so Paul is responding to that here in chapter 9. 
And it's interesting, just by way of note, that you know, Paul, of course, had been with the Corinthians for more than a year and a half. He'd done much good in, in Corinth. People had gotten healed. He preached the gospel. He founded a church. And now his apostleship and reputation are being questioned. And a question we might ask is, is what returns do we make to our pastor and ministers for their sacrifice and service? Here, Paul's labors were met with unkindness and darts. Where he should have expected good treatment, he was, he was getting questioning and poor treatment. The challenge to Paul's authority apparently came on three grounds. Some folks might have been asserting, as we'll gather, see from verse 9, that he was not part of the original 12, therefore could not be an apostle. Also, they were challenging him on the ground that he didn't accept support from the Corinthians. You're not allowing us to support you, so how could you, how could you be an apostle? And finally, perhaps another challenge that we'll look at another day is that he vacillated on the issue of marketplace food, that he would eat with the Gentiles in the marketplace at one time, and then when he's with the Jews, he wouldn't do that, and they're saying, hey, Paul, how can you really be an apostle if you're switching back and forth in these issues? Well, why was Paul's apostolic, might take just a minute, why is Paul's apostolic authority important? Why do we even care about it? Well, of course, the apostles were witnesses of the resurrection. So that's crucial. If there's no resurrection, of course, our faith is in vain. So that was a certainly important point. But also, the apostles were those who spoke in the name and power of Jesus as his ambassadors, as his representatives. If Paul were not an apostle, if he didn't have this authority, then he didn't speak and write with Jesus' authority. He had no authority to correct the Corinthians, let alone write letters that were put of equal authority of the scriptures. So it really is a very important point as to whether Paul was truly an apostle. So this challenge that people were making really went to the heart and existence of the early church. So let's look at the, the first question Paul asks. He says, am I not free? And again, as I mentioned, the, the grammatical assumption is, of course you're free. He's asserting that he is free. This appears to be in, in contrast to a commitment to never eat meat. As Paul said, well, I said I never eat meat. Now am I in slavery or in bondage to someone's conscience? And Paul is saying, I am free. I can do as I please. I'm a Christian. I've got Christ's liberty uh, uh, to do as I want to do in the Holy Spirit and in the Lord. Then Paul begins to more directly defend his apostleship. He deals with what are the basic issues of what an apostle is. Notice, he says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Verse 1. Apostles, one of the things that an apostle must be is a witness of the, the, the life of the Lord Jesus. If you look at Acts chapter 1, of course, after when they were replacing Judas, one of the criterion for choosing men out was whether they had lived a life, whether they'd seen Christ. And here, of course, it's interesting that Paul says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Jesus, of course, Paul rarely used the term Jesus by itself. But in this case, of course, that was the term Jesus himself used of himself on the Damascus Road. Remember, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, is what the Lord Jesus said. So Paul's kind of bringing that very event to mind when he says, yes, I have the credentials of an apostle. I have seen the Lord Jesus. And, of course, he used the sense of this word Lord. When Paul saw Jesus, he was in his resurrected state. So that was a... a uh, glorified, uh, uh, powerful Jesus whom Paul beheld. Then he talks, then he, so that's one of the credentials for being an apostle that Paul deals with is he had seen the Lord. 
His next question deals with the other credential of being an apostle, where he says, are you not my, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And this deals with the idea of, besides apostleship didn't just require seeing the Lord, it also requires commissioning, okay? And there were many disciples, of course, who saw the Lord Jesus during his life, but who were not given apostolic authority, who were never commissioned. And if you recall, again, looking back to Acts 1, uh, Mattathias was actually kind of chosen by the Lord. Remember, they chose lots between Justice and Mattathias, and they chose, and the Lord, as it were, said, this is the one who I want to have be apostle. So it was a sense of commissioning that went along with the fact that apostles were witnesses. So Paul is citing the fact that not only have I seen the Lord Jesus, but God has blessed my ministry. You're my workmanship in the Lord. God has blessed. He sent me to you. I've been commissioned to you, and the, and the, the Lord has owned this, um, uh, this, my labors. In fact, he says, you're the seal of my apostleship. In other words, um, this has to do with authenticity, of course, and ownership. I know I'm an apostle because God has blessed my labors among you and founded a church there. And so, um, and even goes on to say, of course, if I'm not an apostle, then you better wonder where your spiritual condition is because um, of all people you should know that I'm an apostle. So Paul begins this passage by asserting that he has all the credentials of an apostle. He defends his apostleship. But then he continues and goes on. So not only does Paul have all the credentials of an apostle, but as a gospel, he asserts now that as a gospel minister, he has a right to support from the church. As I mentioned, this is one of the, the bases on which the Corinthians were questioning his apostleship. You're not taking support from us, so I question whether you're truly an apostle, Paul. Um, and notice, so right now we're looking then at verses 4, 5, and 6. Notice here Paul begins by saying that, you know, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Paul's not asking whether he's going to, has the right to literally eat and drink, but he means eat and drink at church expense is what Paul's asking there. Um, uh, so Paul's Beginning to defend this question, he says, don't we, meaning himself and, and um, those who are with him, have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? This has the idea of, it's not just, Paul's not just asserting the right to eat and to have be supported himself, but he's saying, also, my family, you know, the, the, the apostle's family also has a right to support. Now he gives us seven reasons why he, as a minister of the gospel, has a right to support from the church. And it seems like these go from the least weighty to the most weighty. So the first reason that Paul says that I have, uh, that the gospel minister has a right to support from the church is that it was the practice of all the apostles and the brothers of the Lord Jesus and Peter to be supported. You'll see that there at um, verse five, uh, 4. He says, Do not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles? and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas. Okay, so he's asserting this, this right because he's saying every, all the other apostles have the right to support from the church. And then, so that's principle number one. Number two is the second reason why the gospel ministry should be supported from the church. He says, he sets this forth in verse seven. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard? without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. 
So our second reason, first reason Paul gives for the reason that gospel ministers have a right to support is the fact that all the other apostles were doing it. Not a particularly strong reason, but that's what was going on, okay? Second reason he says, but look, next reason is that it's a foundational principle of society that a laborer is worthy of his reward. And he looks at three commonplace realities. He says, soldiers are paid. And again, we're looking at verse 7. He says, vine dressers get to eat their own grapes. Shepherds nourish themselves from the flock. These all expect to be paid uh, for or out of their labor. A pastor's work is analogous to all three of these occupations. It's intense and committed like a soldier's is. A pastor's doing spiritual battle. It is useful and hard like a vine dresser farmer for, to pastor. Always something to do. It is demanding and consuming as the constant care of sheep would be. It's intense work. It's difficult work. And Paul compares it here to um, these three difficult occupations. I was reminded of Jacob's words to Laban. If you recall in Genesis 31, he said, These 20 years have I been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and sleep fled from my, fled from my eyes. And Paul's saying here, you know, if, if shepherding sheep is difficult and consuming, how much more shepherding us, <laughs> shepherding the souls of men, okay? So Paul's saying our ministers then ought to be supported by those for whom they are warring, or from the vineyard of God or the flock of God. Paul goes on, he gives another reason, asserts this reason that the gospel minister ought to be supported um, from the church. This is where, here we're looking now at verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So here he's saying, his next reason is, is that the Old Testament recognized the principle of sowing in hope. Okay? By introduction, verse 8, Paul says, hey, human reasoning, is human reasoning enough? No. He's saying, we need to look at what the Bible says, what the law says about this. And then he gives his illustration about muzzling the ox while he's threshing. Glad to say our pastor doesn't look like an ox, but works as hard as one. Um, oxen, of course, in these days were often harnessed to pull a threshing sled, uh, a very heavy sled. Usually often they have uh, stones or metal embedded in the sled that crushes the wheat, and that, of course, separates the wheat from the chaff. And out of care for the laboring animals, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25, God said, you shall not muzzle the ox. This ox is working, and the ox is, is allowed to you know, reach its head down and take a, a bite of, uh, take a bite of grain. And um, Paul says, this was written for us. That wasn't, again, as Martin Luther had come in come, Martin Luther said, well, oxen can't read. It's written for us. They don't get the blessing of this. We do. Uh, it's a recognition, our day, that the, that the law's concern for oxen 
was a way of teaching God's people about his care and, and mercy over everything. So Paul goes on and extracts this principle for our age that we sow and plow and thresh in hope of seeing and sharing the crop. Just like the ox, when it goes round and round and round, has this hope of, you know what, now and then I can reach down and take a, a mouthful of grain. So we, in our age, we plow, we sow, we thresh in hope of seeing a crop. And it's interesting, in this, in this verse, in uh, verse uh, 10, it says, uh, because the plowman should plow in hope. Actually, says, in hope, the plowman should plow. It emphasizes this thought of, of being in hope. Because ministry begins with turning the soil and ends with grain that is harvested. Plowmen plow and threshers thresh, expecting and anticipating a harvest of grain. Likewise, ministers of the gospel and our pastors till the soil, sow the seed, expecting to reap a harvest of souls in the kingdom while deriving physical sustenance from that. So uh, gospel ministers who sow the word each Sunday have a right to hope that from their labors, fruit will come and they'll be sustained by the fruit of their labors. They sow in hope and they should reap from their sowing. So that's Paul's third reason. It's amazing, as we'll see, you'll see that here Paul's going to say, I didn't use any of these rights. Paul keeps building on this argument. It's attempting to just say, well, uh, but Paul, all this is here for our instruction. So um, I'm going to go through each argument. Our argument number four. What other reasons does Paul give? He gives us another argument for that the gospel minister ought to share, be supported. Verse 11, he says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? What's he talking about here? He's saying, when we've benefited from the most valuable thing in the gospel, that is spiritual things, things that are going to benefit us for eternity, ought not share what we can with the gospel ministers, even though they're of lesser value, i.e. money. Money's of less value than the spiritual blessings we have. Paul, he, he assumes here, he has sown spiritual seed among the Corinthians. And notice it's interesting how he kind of makes this, this verse a little more pointed here. He says, notice the use of the personal pronoun you. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share this claim on you, do not we even more. There's this emphasis of saying, hey, this relationship between us is a relationship of gratitude, a relationship of giving um, that should be um, met. The idea is, and, and when he says this, notice he says too, um, is it too much if we reap material things? The idea is, the idea is actually we're big. Is it big? Is it a biggie to reap material things? No. Uh, so, uh, and Paul actually, when he talks, when he talks to the uh, Romans about um, the gift he's bringing, he actually talks to this very, speaks to this very thing in Romans 15. He says, if the Gentiles have shared in spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to the Jews in material things. So our ministers provide us with priceless wealth, rich joy of spiritual blessings, of beholding the beauty of Christ. Cannot we make for them a far less and cheaper return, Paul is saying. Sure we can. Paul gives yet another reason. Reason number five. Here we're looking at verse 12a. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. 
If we support other endeavors, Paul's saying, you're supporting others, other endeavors, other charities, other missions with which you have been involved, how much more with those who are personally charged with your care, who will answer for, for your souls? And Paul, of course, gives us that significant reason. I, if you share with others, why not with me? To speak of his own ministry here, he's saying who has been so vitally involved with you. Now, in, we're, we're now at verse 12, of course, and Paul here, the second half of verse 12 says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Then Paul goes back and gives us two more reasons. So what I want to do, I'm going to skip this little part. We'll come back to that in a minute. And he gives, he gives us two more important reasons. It's almost like he's mentioned the gospel now, and I want to go into sacred reasons for doing this. He keeps getting... Tighter and tighter. So now I've talked, I've talked about legal reasons. I've talked about natural reasons for supporting the gospel minister. And now, now I'm going to clinch my argument with reference to sacred things. So let's skip down here for just a minute to uh, verse 13. He says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. So here's reason number six. He says the temple worship entails this privilege of sharing at the, at the, at the table. Um, even in dealing with sacred things, those who are, who are involved in the temple have the right to eat of the fruit of that. And it's interesting that Aaron and his sons, of course, if you looked at Numbers and Leviticus, they were um, to eat the grain offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering and the peace offering, all those things they could partake of. And Paul's pointing out again how much more to the ministers of the gospel who mediate the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, uh, how much more should, shouldn't they be supported uh, from their labors? And finally, Paul clinches all his arguments in terms of why uh, he has a right to support while the gospel minister has a right to support by referring to the commands of the Lord Jesus. If you look at verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This idea, this, in the Greek, this has the idea of commanded or arranged. And what Paul's referring to here is in Luke 10 and in Matthew 10, twice, Jesus says, the laborer deserves his wages. In uh, Matthew 10, he actually says, he's sending the 12 out, he says, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or tunic, two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer, deserves his food. And Paul's saying, okay, here's, here's our seventh reason. Paul's saying the Lord Jesus ordained that ministers ought to be paid. And it's interesting, even from Paul's earliest epistle, probably Paul's first epistle was Galatians. That was probably the first epistle he wrote. And even there, if you look at chapter 6, he says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So, we've looked at Paul's defense of his apostleship. We brushed over that pretty quickly. We've also looked now at Paul saying that the gospel minister has a right to be supported in the gospel. It's our duty. It's the people's duty to maintain our minister, though the minister is not bound to accept it. Those that preach the gospel have a right to live by it. And those who sit under preaching and ministry have an obligation a well-established and clear obligation. I mean, how many arguments do you get in the Bible where it gives you seven of them? Uh, 
to support those who've committed themselves to the gospel ministry. Like I said, when did I didn't discuss this sermon or this passage? So I'm sure he's kind of going, really, while I'm here? But that, it's, it's, it's coming up, folks. I'm preaching to 1 Corinthians, and here it is. So um, anyway, so as you know, I, I call this, entitled this sermon, maybe you don't know, I call this the feeding and care of the gospel minister. Well, that's the feeding part we've dealt with, okay? Now we're going to talk about the care, concern, and passion of the gospel minister. Because even with those extensive arguments, Paul gives these deep arguments, Paul refuses to use this right. He gives us two reasons for foregoing his right to be supported. Um, one is involved with the progress of the gospel, and the other is the effect that foregoing these rights had on his own life. I entitled this part, The Glory of the Gospel Minister, that, that they, they may for, the gospel ministers may forego their rights to further the gospel or to identify with the Lord Jesus. So let's go back to verse 12 here for a minute. Notice the second half of the verse says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In the Greek, there's no stronger way of contrasting the one with the other. He says, nevertheless, it's it's the strongest negative conjunction. In other words, we have all these rights, I've established them, but I'm not, I've made no use of them. And here, actually, in the, the, the verb for use is an heiress, which means kind of a once for all. I made a decision back when not to do it, and I've stuck with it. Um, so notice that Paul has consciously chosen not to use the right which he has so convincingly established. It's interesting, too, we use the word we. Timothy and Silas, they all, none of them, I guess, actually uh, received support from Corinth. Okay. Why did, what did Paul mean when he meant he did not use this right? Might be, I, I took a minute and kind of reviewed how did Paul support himself on his missionary journeys. Well, of course, we mentioned his first missionary journey to Cyprus with Barnabas. Okay? And, notice, and, and notice it doesn't really say anything in the book of Acts, but it is interesting. In verse 6, Paul says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So evidently on the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas supported themselves with, um, by working uh, there. How about the second missionary journey? Well, we know that Paul, initially in the second missionary journey, he went out and he brought the decree of the Jerusalem Council. Remember about uh, how, they, how what laws should the Gentiles keep? And he brought those out to various churches in Asia Minor. So they took him in. Then, of course, he went to Philippi. And Lydia cared for him there, right? Okay. Uh, and we know that the Philippians sent several gifts to him. If you read the last chapter of Philippians, they sent gifts to him after he'd been persecuted out of Thessalonica and Berea. But it's clear that once Paul got to Thessalonica, he uh, labored, he supported himself. Second Thessalonians 3 says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. We might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's, so that, this question, again, we're looking at Paul says, I gave, up, I gave up this right to support. And we see in, in Philippi, he, he was supported. Once he got to Thessalonica, he began to work for himself. And we see that in um, Athens, in chapter 17 of Acts, it says he was daily in the marketplace. You wonder, 
Paul was supporting himself there. And then in Corinth, if you look at chapter 18, that's where he met Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. He presented themselves to himself to them and said, and began to work with them. And then um, uh, even on the third missionary journey, you have evidence that Paul supported himself. Um, it's interesting. In Ephesus, in Acts 19, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. Well, the word translated handkerchief, delicately handkerchief, actually means sweat rag. And the idea is, you know, that this, this is something Paul had that he, you know, had around his head as he worked, okay? And the idea of apron, of course, is something which a leather maker wears. So there's even indication that on his third missionary journey, Paul continued to support himself, to forego his right to support. Um, and he writes the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, it's, we mentioned he wrote 1 Corinthians just as he was leaving Ephesus. The book of 2 Corinthians was written about a year later. And, and again, even then he writes that when he comes again to Corinth, he will not be a burden to any of them. So it's really clear that Paul, when he says, I did not use this right on his missionary journeys, was he was out there, he supported himself. Look then, please, with me. Let's see. So that's the first point. He, he made a conscious choice. But, and then we'll see that Paul's choice to forgo these rights brought considerable hardship. Um, Look at verse 12 again. Um, it says, We have made, not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put, a gospel, put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Um, this word endure uh, is also found, this is the same word that you find in 1 Corinthians 13 about love endures all things. Um, it's not necessarily, does not necessarily refer to suffering as much as undergoing hardship. Okay? And um, Paul is saying here that they put, he put up with a great deal of hardship because he was working. Um, tents, of course, in those days were made of leather. It's kind of interesting. Some folks speculate the reason Paul was a Roman citizen was because his parents were tent makers, and perhaps he, he made tents for a Roman general, and therefore, they, because that was of such use to the Romans, that was how he got his Roman citizenship. I don't know whether it's much used to share speculation, but it's kind of fun to think about anyway. But the gist is, anyways, is that uh, tent making was hard work. They were heavy to handle. They were foul smelling. Uh, they were unclean. Of course, it rendered Paul unclean. It was something dead. Uh, and then Paul's hands and arms were likely permanently stained with this stuff. It, it also, it says in First Thessalonians, he worked night and day. Probably he taught in the synagogue during the day, and at night he uh, did this tent making ministry. So. Very hard. He went through a lot of hardship. In verse chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, it says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted homeless, buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. It was no light burden to preach and teach, but at the same time earn enough to live and to travel from place to place that Paul endured. So his choice of foregoing uh, his right to support was a, brought hardships upon him. His life was one of privation and self-denial. But we see, why did Paul do this? Looking at 12.10, he says, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Here we get to the heart of the gospel minister. Food and drink and money can be foregone. Labor can be arduous, but he lives for the spread of the gospel. Paul's measure 
And the measure of the gospel minister, and you'll see eventually I'm going to say we are all gospel ministers, so this just doesn't apply to one of us here. The standard by which we conduct our lives, the standard by which we seize our rights or yield them, is whether this activity, the seizing of this right, will be an obstacle or will it obstruct, will it hinder or slow the progress of the gospel. Paul's saying, that was my overriding standard by which I live my life. The spread and proclamation of the gospel was paramount in all that I did. Um, notice that this word hinder here in, in chapter 12, um, or put an obstacle in, in chapter 12c, the last clause there. This word is only found right here in the, in the scriptures. There are other cognates, kind of words that have the same form, but this word is only found here. And it's interesting. It has the idea of the Romans, when they use this word, would cut a part out of a road to block a military advance. So they'd cut out parts of it so that you know the other, another army or another invader could not use the road. And that's kind of the idea here is to slow. And of course, when you think about, um, for instance, Isaiah 40, where he says, you know, make straight the way of the Lord. Remember that in terms of the gospel coming. This is kind of the, the opposite of that. In other words, rather the gospel going smoothly and flowing without problems, Paul's saying whatever rights, whatever... Um, uh, whatever sacrifice I needed to make, if it hindered, if it kept, if it blocked the road for the gospel, I would forego it, okay? We might think for a minute, why would Paul forego his right to support? How would that impact the spread of the gospel? One thing is it protected his reputation, okay? In other words, it distanced Paul from those who peddled religion or wisdom. In those days, you had folks who went around saying, I'm wise, I'm a philosopher, pay me. Um, and Paul, of course, refers to those who uh, peddle the gospel. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about that he will continue to forego his right to support in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim they're like me. I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do. I don't want to be compared with these people. I don't, I don't want to be like them at all. So Paul can. one reason why Paul then forgoes this right is, hey, I, I can speak with disinterested um, self-denial as they preach the gospel. Of course, also, Paul dealt with pioneer, pioneering work with young congregations. So Paul goes to Thessalonica, and he, uh, you know, there's no other Christians there. He, does, he works on his own to support himself. So that's the second reason why Paul might um, uh, forego his right. Also, we read in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul said, I set you an example. You know, I worked, and those who don't work should not eat. So there's another reason why Paul would forego his right to set an example. Also, it's interesting, too, there's some interesting studies that show that at, uh, in Corinth there might have been factions. Well, we know there were factions. <laughs> but that in, under, Roman, under Roman times, if you became someone's patron, that is to say um, someone, someone um, said, hey, I'm going to support you, uh, and you're gonna, I'm going to support you, Paul. I'm going to take you to my house. I'm going to give you money. That there were obligations that you assumed, okay, that you... Uh, would have allegiances, loyalties that would be inappropriate. So Paul was quite concerned. Of course, we know that Corinth already had factions and problems, and Paul says, you know, I'm not going to add to those. I'm not going to further those along by putting myself in the camp of Cephas or Paul or Apollos or whomever. So Paul's renunciation of his rights to material support is attributable to his singular passion for the gospel. His calling in the gospel is so interwoven with the gospel that he can do nothing to hinder it, including accepting support. His whole heart was saying, I want the gospel to go forward. 
He was all about spreading the good news even in spite of hardship to himself. It's interesting, though, the way Paul's done this. Notice, Paul has not undermined the rightful claims of a pastor to be supported. He's given us seven solid reasons to say we need to support our gospel ministers. But he also said, for myself, um, I, I'm, I'm going to forego this. Let's look to verses seven, 15 through 17 for the second reason Paul gives for uh, gospel ministers, uh, the, why they might forego their rights. Okay, uh, Verse 15 there says, But I have not have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. It's interesting, again, after making all these lessons, Paul again is bringing this back to himself. I would rather die. Uh, he's talking about his own personal convictions here. The verb here, but I have, I have made no use is in the perfect. He's saying, I, in verse 12 he said, when I was with you, I determined not to do this, okay? That's a once for all thing I did back then. Now the perfect tense has the idea of a past action that continues. I've continued to make no use. I made that decision back then, and even to this day, I'm foregoing this right. He's, made, he's, he's really completely foregone this right. Uh, and notice he says, none of these things, not food, not drink, not clothing, not for relatives. Paul has completely renounced these rights. And notice how he also kind of deals with people who say, well, maybe Paul's writing to hint, hey, I'd like you to start sending me some of this, some of this support. And he right away says in verse um, 15, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Paul's saying, no, I'm not about that at all. Okay. So that's the first thing is we see that Paul's made a complete renunciation of these rights as we look at verses 15 through 17. But we also see that these rights, foregoing these rights, led Paul to boasting, okay? And notice this boasting was more valuable than life to Paul, okay? And this passage, this part of this passage is really full of emotion again. We're really close to Paul's heart. The syntax is broken, okay? I've got a couple big words I found just because it's fun to have new words and new vocabulary. There's, there's something called a aposiopesis. Anybody know that word at all? I didn't know it either. I had to put it on my computer and have it pronounce it to me about three times, and I still don't think I have it right. But what that means is, is when you start with an if condition and then you stop. So you say, if this happens, and you just stop. So there's, and we see that here. And there's also an anacoluthan, which is an unexpected discontinuity in the expression of ideas. So in other words, you start with one idea and then you go in another direction. Both those things are found here, because as Paul is so wrought up, he, he doesn't finish his thoughts. And if you look at the text, he starts out then with, if you look at verse, um, again, verse 15, the end there, for I'd rather die than, the text stops there, I'd rather die than, and then he says, then he says essentially, no one will make my glory, my, my boast void. So he starts out, I'd rather die, no one's going to make my, my, my boast void. Okay, or in the New Jerusalem Bible it says, I would rather die than, no one shall take away from me my ground of boasting. So Paul's, he is, he is wrought with this. And of course he says, I would rather die. He, he, this is a life and death issue for him, this idea of losing his boast by, that he has from forgoing these rights. Starvation, privation, all those things that happen to him. He says, I, I would rather have that than lose my right. He don't want my boast, boast nullified. He's not going to give this up. Which brought me to the task of saying, well, why was offering the gospel without charge 
so precious to Paul? Why was it so valuable to him? So we're going to look at three things. We'll look at what, what it says about redeemed boasting in other passages to kind of get an idea of what Paul says. And then we'll look at what Paul is not boasting in. And then finally, I think we can discern then what he is boasting in. What is this priceless thing to Paul? We'll see that uh, Paul in the New Testament show that we, and we've experienced ourselves as those who know the Lord, that while we used to glory in our works, in our goodness, and our own strength, okay, now we glory in the person and work of Jesus and what he's done for us, don't we? You can see that, um, of course, uh, in Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in chapter 1, uh, Paul contrasts human boasting with glory in the Lord. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, Here's the way I read all this. As it is written, let him that boast, boast in the Lord. Notice this, you know, we, we talked last week how in the Greek culture, I was kind of, I thought this was fascinating, how in, in all the Greek literature, there was no mention of a good conscience. Remember we talked about that, that it was only until the New Testament came along that there was any reference even to a good conscience. Again, a term that says that the Holy Spirit has come and redeemed a term that was, that was lost. And he says, I'm going to take that term, I'm going to make it my own, Right? And here, boasting, the Holy Spirit's rewritten that term, too, in the Greek uh, vocabulary, because boasting was always used to be about me and how I compared to others. And now Paul takes this term and says, no, I can glory in something besides myself. He makes this term, and he, he makes it anew, he injects it with brand new meaning. Boasting is now glorying in Christ and Him crucified. We boast not by comparing ourselves, but we boast only in the cross and grace of the Lord. So we know that this boast of which Paul is speaking, again, which he says, I'd rather die than lose it, is something that has to do with Christ and him crucified. It is not merely self-denial in which Paul takes delight. This is not asceticism. You know what? I just like to hurt myself. No. It's, it has something to do with Christ and him crucified. Let's take our next clue from what boasting is not. Paul tells us that, okay? Paul, Paul's boast is not in his preaching of the gospel. It's verse 16. Notice verse 16. He says, For I, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Okay, what's he saying here? Paul is saying, does not say he doesn't glory in the gospel. Paul is talking about something he is doing and has done. Okay? He's foregone the right to support in the church, and that causes him to glory or boast, right? But preaching the gospel, another activity which Paul has done and is doing, um, does not have the same value to him that foregoing the right to support does. Why is that? Why does Paul say that preaching is something in which he does not boast? First of all, Paul says he is under divine compulsion to preach. Literally, this says a necessity is pressed upon me to preach. He didn't choose to preach the gospel. It's something he must do. And remember, on the, on the Damascus Road, it wasn't like, hey, Paul, want to preach? Want to do a little witnessing? It was directive. There was no option. It was no negotiation. It was, Paul, 
I've called you as, a, as an apostle of the Gentiles. And in Philippians 3, you see this sense, this tongue where he says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ. And the word can also be translated, I was overpowered by Christ. Paul was not, was not um, he was under divine compulsion to preach the gospel. Also, Paul compares himself to a slave. Um, God had given him a stewardship, and stewards in those days were mostly slaves. They were not paid. It's interesting that that's the, the remember the parable of the talents and the pounds. Remember the, the master's going away and he gives his servant the talents, he said, and he says, go, go do something with this. And, and, uh, and of course, the servants who don't do anything with it are punished, right? Because they, they weren't under obligation. This was a stewardship that, a, that a servant had to perform. The amazing thing about the parables is, is that there's an astounding, astounding exception to what usually happens. That is to say, this, here we have an amazingly generous master who rewards his slaves. That's what makes the parable so amazing is the master comes back and I'm going to give you ten cities. But really, a stewardship, which Paul described himself as, was something you did as a slave. You weren't paid for this. Now, a slave may feel honored by the command of his master. He may, he may obey him gladly, but still it is service. Okay? So we know Paul said, hey, you know, the love of Christ constrains me. I'm doing this with my whole heart, but um, I am compelled. Then the third thing that gives this idea that Paul's acting as a slave is you have this little phrase at the end of um, verse uh, 16, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I'm going to come under divine judgment if I don't preach, preach the gospel. So Paul says that he cannot boast in preaching because he does not do it willingly. He's in our compulsion. He's acting as a slave. God is going to judge him. These reasons Paul is saying, hey, I, I, when I preach, um, I'm not doing it for that. So we get back to this question. So what is the ground for this boasting? Paul says, you know what? I'd rather die than lose that for which I boast about. Why does foregoing the right to support from the church mean so much to Paul? How does it speak of the person and work of Christ? Well, I suggest to you that Paul's boast is that when he forgoes this right, it allows him to live out the free gift of grace in Christ. Offering the gospel without charge by Paul mirrors Jesus' offering of himself to us freely. Our Lord is the unparalleled, unrivaled example of foregoing his rights. He's the Prince of Heaven, and he comes, becomes the man of sorrows, that he might freely give us that which we could never earn or merit. He's, the Lord Jesus is the supreme paradigm of one who did not cling to his rights, but forwent them for the sake of his people. And Paul, in his life, is demonstrating the same foregoing of his rights. He's demonstrating the work-free character of the gospel and of Jesus yielding his rights. Paul says, I'd rather die than cease showing the free nature of Christ's gift and sacrifice. He's become a living example of the gospel itself. The gospel is free of charge, and Paul says, I want to offer it free of charge. I get to live out part of what my Savior has done for me. In offering the gospel without charge, Paul is glorying in all that the Father in Christ has done for him. He is freely received, and now he can freely give. Remember Jesus' words I read to you from Matthew 10, where he said, freely receive, freely give. 
I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'd like everybody to stand up for just a minute. And we're going to sing a song that came to me yesterday morning that I think is, is glorious, that we can revel with Paul in the free gift of grace. And I think um, the guys can put it up here. I need a drink of water myself. Do we know? I don't know if we have music at all, but I can. Do we know this song? It goes, God forgave my sin in Jesus' name. I've been born again in Jesus' name. And in Jesus' name, I come to you to share his love as he told me to. I just had to revel in that song together because it's, have your seat, we're almost done. <laughs> Not done yet, though. We're close to, but, but I had just thought it would be good to revel together. I just got that song in mind. I thought, you know, freely, freely we've received. So we've seen the defense of the apostle, that Paul has all the credentials of an apostle. The gospel ministers have a right to be supported at church expense. We've seen the glory of the gospel minister that they forgo their rights, they may forgo their rights to further the gospel and to delight in, to enjoy, to live out the life of Jesus. So I say, first of all to you, do we know this one who's, do you know this one? Who's freely given himself for you? Who offers you a gift without money and without price? He has food and drink for you, which satisfies. He's the one whom Paul emulates, who says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my door and opens the door, I will come into him. Here's my voice that opens the door. I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me. This is one whom you can get to know. He says, he says hear his words. Whomever believes in me shall have eternal life. So I want to present him, first of all, as the one to whom we can all come, who freely offers this gift and say, will you open your heart to him? You gain from him reconciliation and peace and all of this which he bought at inestimable price which he gives to us for free, which so entranced Paul that he said, I, I am never going to give up this boast. I've got to live this life out. Finally, why, why look at this passage? Well, of course, in it, you can see we see Paul's heart in teaching. There's a lot for us to listen to and emulate here. I want to give us three S's as things we could do here. One is to sow in hope. Life in the early church was not easy for the churches or for Paul. There were factions, there was criticism, there was hardship and toil, there was attacks that were made. And we must not become discouraged either when things aren't perfect for us. We're at war. We live in enemy territory. There's an enemy who's out there to devour us. And the early church had multiple issues and problems. But we labor in hope, don't we? Paul said, you know what? We labor... the the. Sarah got me started. It's all your fault. No, I'm just kidding. I do, I do this anyways, as you well know. But anyway, the gist is we sow in hope. And, and you know, Paul said very specifically, this truth is for us. The, uh, the ox is muzzled. That was Old Testament. He said, how does that apply to us? Uh, now we sow in hope. We, we sow and we will reap if we do not give up. Wonderful passage from Galatians 6. We can claim that promise. So sow in hope. Support those who labor in the gospel. What spiritual things have you reaped? Perseverance, encouragement, sights of Christ. How valuable has been that spiritual harvest to you? What in life brings you comparable joy and meaning and satisfaction and freedom and deliverance? What will help you finish your course with joy? 
will bring you safely home. The gospel ministry that we sit under. So is it too much that our preacher and staff should read material things of much less value than they offer us? So support those who labor in the gospel, so in hope, support those who labor in the gospel, and finally, sacrifice our rights. I don't believe anybody here will argue they're an apostle. Okay, I got that. But we are in a broad sense all gospel ministers, aren't we? We all have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We all know the passage of Romans talks about how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. So are we oriented to do in all that we do to the gospel? Is that our first consideration like it was Paul's, a paramount thought? Is the Lord Jesus our boast and glory? What rights have we yielded so he can better be seen in our lives? How can we better emulate and live out his life in us? Is there anything which obstructs the progress of the gospel in your life? What sacrifices are you choosing to make to further the gospel? Paul said, you know what? I, I made these sacrifices. I had to toil. I mean, I mean, imagine. I mean, to mine, this wasn't... The other thing is, this wasn't just... A, I mean, how to put it? You know, Steve, uh, I'll miss a meeting or something. I've got 10 minutes. Paul's chosen to labor every day at a hard, arduous job with, with, with fruit he may not see for a long time. So what sacrifice are we choosing to further the gospel and live it out? I think about my... A right? Do we have a right to retire? Live at ease. So, Paul would rather have died than yielding up his opportunity to provide the gospel at no cost. The last question, have you considered the blessings of doing things that aren't required of you? Not imposed upon you. That's interesting. Uh, Melinda brought her, uh, where's Melinda? I don't know if she's here somewhere. Great opportunities there. You know what I'm saying? There's, those are things which are inconvenience, but they're not really that big, are they, compared to what Paul did? But they'll further the gospel that we can get our mops gals, more mops gals here and so forth. That was an unpaid for plug. Uh, but, and so may the, Lord, may the Lord direct our hearts into this. Let's close in prayer. What a miracle of grace you did in the Apostle Paul's heart, and you've done in each of our hearts too, and we thank you that the same grace which was at work in the Apostle's heart, which caused him to sacrifice all for the gospel, is at work in our hearts. And the same life which was his, and the same Lord is ours that was his. And we have the same promises that are ours. So we would pray that you would make uh, make us to sow, to sacrifice, whatever the second one was, Lord. can't think what it was. We pray you'd help us to do each of those things that we need to do to support the gospel ministry in a way that please you and from a heart that would be set upon the gospel. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.